Welcome back, Cal and listeners. This is Methodical Millions, episode 25. Cal, I've had this on my mind lately. Tell us a bit about stock options and what they are. So stock options is a derivative of stocks where you can actually trade effectively the stocks without actually buying the stocks. So the idea behind them is an option is a contract. There's a buyer and a seller for that contract. And the meaning of it is that the buyer and a seller agree to transfer 100 shares from the seller to the buyer at a certain pre-agreed price by a certain date. Now, let's say a stock XYZ is trading today at $100, and then you own 100 shares of XYZ. And I believe that in three months' time, it'll be at a $110 or possibly higher. And you would say, well, I would sell you a contract that you would sell me 100 shares of XYZ three months from now at 110 if the stock price reaches 110 or higher. And if it doesn't reach it by that time, when the contract expires, let's say it reaches 105, then the contract expires worthless and the seller of that contract would basically pocket that money. So there are many benefits of options trading. Some people use it as hedging. Some people would trade it actively for the sake of the movement because you are not buying the actual shares. You're buying a contract that gives you the right to trade these 100 shares. So they have this leverage in them. They can be volatile depending on what underlying they're based on. So they could be a very tempting opportunity for traders to trade with. Yeah, and just on Wikipedia here, and the first use case of options was in the ancient Greek time. And it looks like there was a Greek mathematician who would buy the right to rent olive presses. Only if there was a huge olive harvest would he exercise that right and rent them out at a higher price. So it's almost like a market arbitrage. And the point is to give you the option to exercise and It's up to you if you want to. So options are interesting because when you own shares in something, you have to ride the wave. And if an investment does well or not, you're on the hook. You own equity, you own shares, you're all in. But with an option, it could be used in your benefit in case a stock does well, but it's almost like an insurance policy, right? And if you don't, my understanding is that it doesn't actually cost you the amount of 100 shares, it costs you much less. Is that right, Cal? Yes, correct. That's exactly it. It depends on how far the expiration is of that underlying stock or equity and also what price that you suspect it will reach by that period. And like I said, the option is giving you the option of actually exercising it or not. If you wish not to exercise it as the buyer, then you have that option. But some people would exercise it if they have the option to do so. The option being in the money, meaning that the underlying price has exceeded its target. So it's beneficial for the buyer to actually buy it at the pre-agreed price. So there's three terms, an option being in the money, at the money, meaning three months from now, the price of the underlying expires at exactly the price of the contract is agreed and out of the money, meaning it never reached it and effectively the contract expires worthless. For those who are listening first time, it can be a bit of an earful and it can be a bit confusing, but it is quite fascinating because 
there's a lot of ways where you can trade with it, where you can use it as protection, as insurance. Like you said, there's a lot of ways where you can benefit in terms of even on investing or trading terms. And it gives you an understanding of even just the basics. That's what it is, really. You agree ahead of time of a price you expect it to be in a week from now, a month from now, or a year from now, or even more. Yeah, it's funny. So when I first heard of stock options, the first thing that comes to mind is you're an executive at a company. You've got stock options. Is that basically the same thing? Is that somehow related to buying and selling options on the public market? I believe that executives would have not necessarily the same options that we're talking about, but perhaps some sort of contractual benefits in terms of getting those sort of bonus, let's say. But options contracts are available to anyone. Some brokerage firms require to have some sort of experience or some sort of education before you actually start trading, but it is quite accessible to anyone really. Yeah. To draw some similarities, I thought it was actually quite similar. So I think the idea is instead of giving you 5% of a company, let's say you join a tech startup that's already mature, you get some stock options. And I think the point of it is to give you options at a certain price. Let's say vesting in two years, which means you can't really exercise it before then. So let's say you get these options to buy at a $5 share price in four years. And when those four years are up, if the stock is worth $50, it makes sense to exercise those. So options are just that. That's the way to think of it. It's an option to purchase stock. That's all you need to know at a fundamental level, which is you have the right to do something, but you don't have to do it. And you don't actually own the stock, which is why it's called a derivative. So it's almost like making a play on a stock on a secondary market that has its own bid and ask spread. It has its own volume. I think the biggest options exchange is the Chicago Board one, right, Cal? Yes, Chicago Board of Options Exchange. Yeah. And for those who want to follow along, I think your broker should be able to give you access. You might have to sign off on it. And I think the world of options gets very complex. So we're just going to try and go into the basics. But how I understand it, when you buy a stock, you can jump into the market any day of the week. Let's say Apple is at $125 a share today. And if you want to buy a share on Tuesday, the market opens at $130. You could put a bid at $125, but if the market's moved and it goes to $130, $135, $140, your bid will never get exercised. So for long-term investors, you'll more than likely put an at-market bid, which is basically saying, hey, I'll take whatever price I can get. So fill my order. I want 10 shares of Apple at whatever price you'll probably end up spending twelve to $1,300 and then you will hold it. When it's time to sell, you could likely do a market order as well. And that's kind of the strategy for long-term investors. You make your multiples over time and you really don't care about the short-term price fluctuations. But with options, a good example, we'll use Apple again. So if Apple's trading at 125 today, most options contracts, as far as I know, are sold in weekly increments. So why do options expire? Because it's a contract to exercise something. And without a firm date of when to exercise that contract, I think the contract's kind of meaningless. It'll just be open forever. It wouldn't really make sense. So these tables of options expire weekly for that reason. And I think it can go into monthly and yearly in the super long term, but we'll start with a weekly. So let's say an option expires this Friday at market close. So four o'clock. So what happens is 
you can essentially buy a contract at any strike price. And I think the increments are $2.50 at the lowest. So you can essentially buy a contract that says, if Apple hits 130, I want the right to exercise the option. So we'll walk through that case. If Apple finishes at 125, which is out of the money, as you said, that means your contract is worthless because there's nothing to exercise. So whatever you paid for that option, which is called the option premium, basically went down the hole. And depending on your strategy, which I don't think we'll go into the strategies much today, just the fundamentals of how an option works, what happens as time goes on and so on. So if your option expires worthless, your contract's done. Your money has been used and whoever wrote that contract is technically pocketing that money. So every time you make a bet, you have someone making the opposite bet and you're in contract with an actual person. It could be a broker, it could be a fund. It's almost like physics. There's an equal and opposite bet in your direction every time you place a bet. So if you're buying an options contract under the assumption that Apple will be at $130 or greater in a week, why would you do that? Let's talk about that. So let's say Apple has an earnings call next Wednesday. And on good information, you know that they're releasing self-driving. They're going to come up with cool AR glasses. They've got a new iPhone that's teleporting or something insane. So you understand that there's a good chance Apple will appreciate and they'll hit $5 trillion, for example. So the time at which the option expires is debatable. It might not happen in a week, but it'll happen in a year. So you'd go to the expiry a year from now and look up the option premium. So let's say the option premium's at $5,000. And the thing about options is they actually come in bundles of 100. So every single option contract you buy is always bundled in 100 shares. So the reason why it's essentially so powerful is because you're leveraging 100 shares for the price of 5,000, which Apple at 125 for 100 shares is 12,500. So you have a greater magnitude of force with a smaller amount of capital. It gets very into the weeds. I'm not going to go into the theories necessarily of why options appreciate or not, but just want to explain how those work. So you buy 100 shares and every single second the market is open, that option has a value. And where does that value come from? Based on the demand, the bid and ask spreads of people bidding. And this is why those concepts of liquidity and things like that are so important. Because if you buy an option that no one wants, so imagine you're selling something on Kijiji that's some old Tupperware. And if no one's lining up to buy it, you could sell it for a penny and it's basically worth nothing. So liquidity is important, picking something that's high volume and we're going to go through a mental exercise. So what happens if a year comes by, Apple hits their targets, you were right, and the underlying, as it's called, which is the actual share price of Apple, appreciates. So if Apple hits 200 a share in six months, and you still have a six-month contract to go, saying that you can exercise the right to buy Apple at $150 for 100 shares, what does that mean? It actually means that that difference in price, you could actually pocket that money, which is $50 a share times 100 shares, $5,000. So people will play options as a way to grow their portfolio. And there's a lot of inference and math behind it, I would argue, but there's a reason why they're traded. Cal, what do you think as a percent 
how popular are options in terms of stocks? You seem to follow trading quite diligently. You've looked at trading volume. What's the volume of options traded versus actual stocks on the market? I came across the statistic a while ago. I think in the large scheme of things, stocks are actually still traded way more than options because options can expire. They lose value as time goes by. So all these factors come in and they might not be considered a very efficient long-term investment vehicle. However, that is arguable on what you think long-term is. Three months, some people it's two years, some people it's 10 years or more. So I think stocks are still traded way more. But options are used extensively by big funds. They're available to traders in the public market. But yeah, it is an interesting concept. And the challenge with options is it can be deceiving because the potential can be very big in terms of returns, but it can be a be all end all kind of thing. Can have a scenario where you could lose all your money where it's less likely to happen with stocks. They can be more volatile than stocks. I strongly recommend properly educating oneself with options because not completely understanding how they work and what drives the contract price, what can cause it to go up and what can cause it to go down can easily blow up your account. So education is key, but they are very, very fascinating to help grow or protect your funds from disappearing in terms of market pullbacks. You have two types of options. You have call options and you have put options. They work in opposite directions where if you buy a call option, you effectively believe that stock would be going up in price. And if you buy a put option, then you believe that the stock or underlying would be going down in price by the time of expiration. And I just wanted to add something here. Just to clarify what it means for an option to expire worthless is, let's use the Apple example that you used earlier. So assuming Apple was at $125 a share, and then you say in one month's time or one week's time, I believe it'll be $130. Now, if it reaches that expiration date and your strike price is $130, but Apple's actual stock price ends up closing at $127. So that means the options expire worthless because that option gives you the ability to buy 100 shares of Apple at $130. Why would you do that when you could go to directly to the open market and buy them at $127, which is cheaper than your strike price? So that is why no one can use that contract and it expires worthless. Now, assuming Apple goes to 135 that's when the option becomes in the money, that call option in this case. So that would give you the benefit by going to the seller of the option. I bought the strike price at 130, so they would sell you the shares at 130, and then you can sell them directly at the open market for 135 each. So you're making $5 per share times 100, in this case, it'd be $500. So that would be called in the money. So I just want to explain a bit more about what it means for a contract to expire worthless and what it means for it to be of value. That's really awesome. Thanks for explaining that. It's quite tricky because if you're making an inference on Apple appreciating over the long term, if you pick the wrong expiry, so next week instead of next year, and you still believe in Apple, owning 100 shares and it dips to 127 is not a big deal all of a sudden. But putting $1,000 in an option contract that goes to zero, you essentially lose all your money, which is quite dangerous. 
even if Apple stays flat. So I find it quite complex, but very interesting at the same time, because if I guess this right, you do get the power of 100 shares for a lot less money. So if you can almost figure out the direction of the market, so you're very bullish on Apple or Tesla, some of the big names or Amazon. And I'm sure if people had bought options contracts during the quote unquote crash, they would have probably done well if those options were six months out. I don't have the math, but that's my guess. And Cal, can you tell us a bit about what drives the price of an option? Let's say with that Apple example, how would you start to think about how that option appreciates? And what does that mean? How are these methods calculated? Yeah, it can get a bit technical here, but it's required in this case. So let's say Apple is at 125, you buy a call at a strike price of 130, that expires in one month's time. So let's say that options price would be around $5 a contract. So it costs you around $500 to buy that contract. So you buy that call option. And in this scenario, at the beginning, you have what they call the time, which is one month out, that you believe Apple would hit that price or go higher than that price by that time. So that entire value of that option is extrinsic value. So you have two values for an option, something called an extrinsic value, and you have what you call intrinsic value. The extrinsic value is effectively the time value of that option. So each day that goes by, that value decreases because you have one month until that option expires. And each day passes, you have less time for that stock to hit that price or exceed it. So let's say two weeks in, Apple has a good run and in two weeks time ends up at 135. So now the stock is at 135. You still have two more weeks until the expiration of the option. So what would the value of that option be? The value of that option would be actually the time left, which is two weeks, in terms of two weeks worth of what they call time value, plus the difference between your strike price of the option, which is 130, and the current price of the stock, which is 135. So let's say by then, the option price would be around $7. Just to explain to you that the time value of an option isn't a linear movement. It actually drops exponentially the closer you get to the expiration date. But having said that, for this example, let's say that's the case. So you have $5, which is the difference between 135 and 130, plus two weeks time roughly would be around two more dollars worth on the option. So now the option is $7 times 100 because it gives you the ability to buy 100 shares of Apple. So the option multiplier is 100. Now the contract's at $700. So if you were to sell the option now, you're worth $700. So you would make a $200 profit on that option. So that's a pretty good rate of return, right? Now let's assume three scenarios. The first is the end of the month arrives. And the first scenario is Apple closes above 130. So let's say for this example, it actually goes up, goes down, fluctuates, and then ends up closing at 135, same price that it was two weeks ago. So now at the expiration of the option, the option's value is at $5. What that means is that $5, it's the intrinsic value of the option. 
And because today's the expiration day, so there's no more days left on that option, then there's no extrinsic value left. So it's all intrinsic value. So that's your $5. You actually end up, in this case, being break-even. If it closes at 134, 133, there's still intrinsic value, which would be less than the $500 in this case. So you'd actually be losing a bit of money. Now, if it expires and the stock ends up being at 130 or 131, you'd still be losing money because you spent more money than what the intrinsic value of that option is. Even though you were correct, you assume that the stock would be at 130 or more by the end of the month, and it is, but you ended up paying more for that option than what it would be worth at expiration if you actually hold it to the end. So that's where it can get complicated. There are times where actually you could be losing all your money if the option expires at the money, which is at 130 on expiration, or less, meaning there's no intrinsic value left in the option, and your call option would be expired worthless. So it is a mathematical equation. You have the Greeks. So the Greeks are things that help you monitor the fluctuation of the price. Delta is the price change in an option compared to a change in $1 movement in the stock price. So for every dollar the stock moves, how much would the option change in terms of price? Let's say if a delta was 50 of an option, meaning the stock moves up $1, then the option would move up 50 cents or down 50 cents. So that's what delta is. You have time value, you have implied volatility. These can affect the price of the stock significantly. So the stock suddenly shoots up or goes down all of a sudden, then that would affect the price of the options because that means there's a wider range that it's moving in. So that would affect the price as well. These are the main drivers of that. Yeah. I just want to make a clarifying point. So every time you value an option, an option could trade from anywhere from 50 cents to $500. And there's such huge value swings because the valuation of the contract being in the money or not relative to its time and the actual price of the underlying stock makes a huge difference. But when we talk about an option being worth 50 cents, the actual price you're paying, you always have to times that by 100 shares. So at 50 cents, it would cost you $50, which is times 100. And things like Delta. So if an option price is going to actually increase by 50 cents, which is quite common, options could move 5 10 $20 a day per contract, depending on the performance of the underlying. Keep in mind that you're actually always multiplying it by 100 for the true amount. So what makes options so exciting and interesting to people is that 50 cents in a minute, isn't that exciting? But what if you actually made $50 every time the share price moved a dollar? There's a lot of assumptions here and there's a lot of risk, but we're kind of just outlining it to A, learn it better ourselves and B, just explore it with our listeners. Options, making $50 every time an underlying moves a dollar starts to add up. And a couple of points here. So even though you have the right to exercise an option, what happens if Apple hits 150 and you don't have that 15,000 US dollars to exercise that option? Because once you do, you're paying to buy those shares at the cheaper price you agreed to, and you're buying it from that person who made that bet on the other side. They have to sell you those shares. So option contracts are not just, hey, you win this round. There could be an implication of giving up shares or buying shares. And 
it can get very, very expensive. So unless you're running a fund or really understand the implications, I'd vote do a lot more research than playing around with them. So here's my understanding. Apparently, most options go unexercised. And if you win the trade where your inferences were right and Apple went to 150 in a month and you had that option strike price of 130, you could actually go to the market and sell that option back to the market. And for the sake of simplicity, that option premium would have climbed by the delta that moved less the time decay. So it's worth $5,000 more. Instead of actually buying those shares and collecting the difference in your account and reselling your shares back to the market, you can essentially just sell that option that's worth more money and pocket the premium difference, less commissions. So all of a sudden, you can buy and sell options contracts. And assuming you're right, all of a sudden, you're making the options premiums. And when you close your position, that's it. You've closed it out. You've either collected the premium or sold it at a loss to cover back some premium left, depending on the actual direction it went. But that's the idea. You don't have to actually exercise those shares. Just want to make a point about that. That's definitely a way to do it. Cal, we've talked about this before, but let's talk about the sell side for a second. And I read an options book about this. You could actually sell calls that's supposed to be the least risky. I'm going to let you explain it, but let's say you're a big wig, you own 100 shares of Apple and you want to start selling calls. What does that mean? And what does an example look like? Yes. So let's say you're on the other end of the contract. You want to sell the call option. What does that mean? Let's say again, I own 100 shares of Apple at 125. That's my average price on those shares. So what you're saying is in one month's time, I do not believe Apple will hit 130, right? I think it's going to be below the $130 mark. So what happens is if you were to sell that call option to and to sell a call option at 130 for a month from now. So if you remember the first example, we said, let's say, assume that you bought it for $5 a contract. So that would cost you using the option multiplier of 100. That would cost the buyer $500. That $500 would actually go to the seller. And they would get to pocket that money regardless of what scenario happens. So if the option closes below 130 by the time of expiration, then the seller doesn't have to do anything. The option expires worthless. They get to pocket the 500 and they still own their 100 shares. What if it expires above 130? Then if the buyer decides to exercise that option, then the seller would have to sell his 100 shares that he owns to the buyer for $130 a share, even though the stock price was above 130. Let's say the stock went to 140 or 150. Doesn't matter. You sold a contract at 130, so that's what you're selling it at. So in this case, some people think, oh, he might be losing out. Yes, they're losing out on extra profits, but don't forget that they bought the 100 shares at an average price of 125. They still made some sort of profit on their shares, even though they might not be the biggest return. Usually, what they would name a call seller would be bearish on the stock for the period that they're selling. And once it expires, and if it's not exercised, then they get to do it again the next month and again. And they can earn some sort of return on that as long as they still own the shares. 
So there are many, many strategies you can do, but this strategy is called a covered call, meaning you own the shares anyway, but you decide to sell some options on those shares. And if they expire worthless, then you get to pocket the money. If they actually end up expiring and being in the money, then you'll have to sell your shares, but at least you'll sell them at a price that generally would work for you. So you wouldn't necessarily lose out on it depending on where you set up the strike price. So it's relatively safe, but there's the risk being assigned to that contract, meaning that someone exercised it and then you have to oblige to your part of the contract of selling them the shares. Yeah. Contract assignment was those unknowns that really scared me at the beginning. I know I had a lot of questions around it and my fear of the unknown was do I get assigned? Am I going to owe more money than I invested in the contract? So the step one of risk, if you're buying call options, taking over contracts that people are selling, my concern was that A, you could lose your money in a short amount of time if you don't hit the strike price by that expiry. But B, I wasn't quite sure if I'll be assigned or anything like that. But as far as I understand it now, if you're buying a call, you're taking over a contract, it's open. So it's called buy to open. If you want to close off that contract, we walked through this scenario of it expiring worthless. So in that case, yes, worst case, you would lose your initial investment. But let's say you want to recoup some of that premium back and you realize the position's not going in your direction. So maybe you sell it for half price and that's called sell to close. You're going to close off that position, your position neutral as it's called. But in the case of selling a covered call where you have the shares in your account, and again, maybe you realize... Apple is jumping. It's getting close to your strike. You still want to go long Apple. You don't want to have to rebuy the shares at some unknown number. So my understanding is, A, you sell to open that position originally, that covered call. You can actually buy to close it. So you're rebuying a contract on the open market and you close off your options contract. So in that case, I don't believe you get assigned. But you had wrote a contract. Maybe you collected $1,000 premium. And now you have to go to the market and buy one for 2000 to protect your shares. So there's a lot of ways of looking at it, depending on your strategy. And that's why we talked about things like time horizon, because I think options trading opens up a whole new game. There's a lot of moving parts. It's not just a linear stock movement. It's almost another plane entirely. So just before we wrap up here, let's try and scare our listeners a bit. What's the worst possible outcome someone trading options could run into. I think that's called selling naked calls or puts, which means you don't have any of the underlying in shares. Is that right, Cal? What does that look like, that scenario? Yeah, that could possibly be the worst case scenario. So you trade the S&P 500 ETF, which is the SPY. So right now, SPY is trading around $340. Just early in the week, it was around 355 So you could have said, okay, I'm going to sell a one-week naked option, meaning I don't own any SPY shares. So I'm going to sell one put contract at $345 and make that money because it's not likely going to drop that much in one week. So you do that, and then you make a small premium. Let's say you make $50 on it. And then the market drops during that week and ends up closing that week at around $344 or so. So that means because you sold that put, if you're a put seller, you are now obliged to buy 100 shares at $345. 
So you have to spend $34,500 of SPY shares that you might not have if you don't have a large account. So that assignment could be quite expensive. The thing is with a seller, you don't have the control whether you get assigned or not, where the buyer has the option to buy or to sell those shares, whether it was calls or put. Yeah, I think it's a cool topic. We're going to follow it closely and we'll keep our listeners updated on our progress. So in the case of an option getting exercised, number one, you need a brokerage that will sign off what I believe is called a margin account. So you have to be able to leverage or borrow money in the case of an exercise event. And that 34K, what happens is you own that stock on margin and you will absolutely get margin called, which means, hey, you better pay up. You better go sell a car, sell a house, sell some assets and fund the account to settle it square. What actually will happen as well is the broker will do two things. One is if the option gets exercised, I'm pretty sure in most brokerage agreements, they will auto force you to sell those spy shares back to the market at market value on the next opening day. So Friday comes, someone exercises it, you've got 34,500 in SPY shares. And if SPY drops to 320 over the weekend, there's a doomsday event and there's another 10% drop, what's gonna happen next? You will have to sell off your position at let's say 32,000 and all of a sudden you're on the hook for that $2,500. But as a brokerage, that risk is really toned down where they're not going to chase you for 34500 They'll chase you for the difference. And this is why we recommend a lot of education when it comes to this kind of stuff. And it is quite common, I think, for hedge funds to use it. I just want to wrap up. I did hear something recently that SoftBank, probably the biggest fund out there when it comes to venture capital, specifically in the tech space. So it's run by a guy who made lots of money in the 90s, early 2000s on big bets and over time grew this huge amount of funds. So most VCs would be proud that they're running a fund of 500 million, a billion dollars. But under SoftBank, they run a fund of 100 billion. And they made some big investments like Uber. WeWork was one that they were famously put through the ringer because it had some IPO issues. I think they're doubling down on that one. And they own probably 80% of the company. And they're going to try and pull a rabbit out of a hat there. But what SoftBank was in the news for was buying a lot of call options on companies like Tesla, Apple. Amazon in April during the crash. And it's a way to use leverage under the assumption that the companies will do well in the next six, eight, 12 months. So that's an example of putting your money to work where A, you can, and I would argue they're very diversified. They're not putting it all on black. Diversification is key. So I guess our public disclaimer on this one is going to be take the time to educate yourself. It doesn't have to be a success overnight. This is definitely a lot to wrap your head around, but useful in the right cases. So we're glad to have covered that. And any questions, drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. So with that said, we'll wrap up today's episode. That was Methodical Millions, episode 25. If you'd like to follow future episodes, you can find us at methodicalmillions.com or info at methodicalmillions.com for episode feedback. Thanks, everyone.